the Lord a new song, because God has done wonderful things. God's own strong hand and holy arm have won the victory. The Lord has made salvation widely known, has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of all the nations. God has remembered steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Every corner of the earth has seen our God's salvation. Shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Be happy. Rejoice out loud. Sing your praises. Sing your praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of music, with trumpets and a horn blast. Shout triumphantly before the Lord, the King. Let the sea and everything in it roar, the world and all its inhabitants too. Let all the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains rejoice out loud all together before the Lord, because God is coming to establish justice on the earth. God will establish justice in the world rightly. God will establish justice among all people fairly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And from the New Testament, the Gospel according to John, continuation of last week's reading from chapter 15. Jesus saying, As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I give you these commandments so that you can love one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Today is a Sunday we talk about love. God's love for us, our love for one another, the love that brought us into the world, and the love that will never let us know. Jesus praises love as a gift from God, an excellence of character, and a way of life. Love is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and in the end, love is all we have left. The Apostle Paul said, faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. Centuries later, St. John of the Cross said, in the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. As beautiful as love can be, we often use the word cheaply. In the Bible, love is translated from several Greek words, eros, a love based in desire, philia, brotherly love, and agape. 
And agape is the noun used by John seven times just in these chapters 13 through 15 and rarely or never by the other gospel writers. Agape is an intentional love that expects nothing in return. It is the sign of our lodging in God, of our sojourning in Christ. First John pushes even further, saying directly, God is love. A 10th century hymn for Monday Thursday begins with the Latin words, which I don't know Latin, but I think they go like this. Ubi caritas e amor, dus ibi est which means where charity and love are, where charity and love are, there God is. When we abide or dwell in God's love, that's when God is present. And in today's passage, Jesus continues this metaphor of the vine and the branches, making it clear that the disciples can neither love one another nor bring others to faith apart from abiding in the love of Christ. The vine is the source, and everything flows from it. And agape is expressed in affection. It is modeled by the relationship between God and Jesus. St. Augustine used an analogy to explain the nature of the Trinity, which is classically hard to explain. What do you say about it? But he said, God is the lover, the beloved, and the love that unites them. But Augustine wasn't always so erudite or intent on following Christ. He has been called the saint of restless hearts for his wayward path toward the sovereign God of grace. And he confesses both faith and sin in his classic book, The Confessions. He says this, Late have I loved you, beauty ever so ancient and ever so new. Late have I loved you, you were within I was without. I, misformed, headlong, rushing in the well-formed things you have made, sought for you there. You were with me, but I was not with you. Those things held me back, distant from you. Those things which would have no being were they not in you. You beckoned, bellowed, broke through my deafness. You burned, blazed, banished my blindness. You breathed your fragrance. I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst. You touch me, and I ache for your peace. Augustine unpacks with flourishing words what theologians call prevenient grace. That is the grace which is present before we're even able to understand or to respond to God. The grace which beckons us toward something, someone bigger than ourselves. This goes back to Jesus saying to his disciples, whom he calls friends, you did not choose me. I chose you. What does it mean to be? to live as being chosen by Christ and understanding ourselves as beloved of God. In a little book called Life of the Beloved, Spiritual Living in a Secular World, Henry Nouwen wrote to, in his words, speak a word of hope to people who no longer come to churches or synagogues and for whom priests and rabbis are no longer the obvious counselors. Nouwen writes to his friend in the introduction to the book, that the greatest gift my friendship can give you is the gift of your belovedness. 
And I love that concept. The gift of your belovedness. I can give that gift only insofar as I have claimed it for myself. And isn't that what friendship is all about? Giving to each other the gift of our belovedness. The short book is well worth reading as Nowen fleshes out this model of the spiritual Christian life based on the Lord's Supper. He says, like the broken bread and the poured out wine, we too are taken or chosen, blessed, broken, and given. And he knows that we need help understanding our own belovedness, so he gives us these three real really practical ways to get in touch with how beloved we are. And the first thing he says we need to do is unmask the world around you for what it is. Manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and ultimately destructive in some ways. See those things. See the lies the world tells us about who we are and reject those lies. And the second thing he says is keep looking for people and places where your truth is spoken and where you're reminded of your deepest identity as chosen. And that's what churches and synagogues and 12-step groups and solid families and friends and teachers can do for us. Remind us of our truth. Remind us of our belovedness. Third, he says, celebrate your chosenness constantly with gratitude, deciding to be grateful rather than bitter. This means regularly saying thank you to God for having chosen you and thank you to all who remind you of your belovedness. He says, these are the spiritual disciplines for my life as beloved of God. It's not easy to practice them during times of crisis. Amen. But doing so allows us to recognize the beloved status of others. The whole point of the spiritual journey is to make ourselves fit for service to our neighbor. The whole point is to love more. And I hope that as we work together for the regathering and reopening that we're inching toward as a society and as a church, that we see it not as a return to the way things were, but as a chance to do things differently. The pandemic has made it impossible not to know what needs to be done. The injustices fracturing our world have been laid bare for all to see. As I heard a friend ask in a presentation on the systemic inequalities revealed by COVID, will we still care when the pandemic is over? Will we keep looking for new ways of living that cherish every life? As a congregation, we'll need to change our habits once again in order to work toward the high goals we have set to be part of God's mission in the world. Ahead of us, we have the challenge of re-engaging in church and in relationship with each other. The challenge of matching our charity with advocacy and empowerment. And we'll need to go deeper into the gifts of joy and friendship and being chosen by Christ and giving to each other the gift of our belovedness, understanding we will be taken, blessed, broken, and given over and over again as we love the world. Recently, I had an interesting conversation with my youngest son as we came across a photo of all four boys on the summer swim team with their shirts off and the youngest, the one I was talking to, looking 
charmingly pudgy at age nine. And it was around Easter, which is maybe what prompted him to let loose a grudge he had been holding onto, the sort of accusation that mothers grow used to as our children get older and grow into adults, and we find ourselves sort of blamed for all sorts of things along the way. And only half-jokingly, he told me, you know, the reason I was so fat, he said in fourth grade, was that, wait for it, you gave me a chocolate bunny every year in my Easter basket that was too big, and my older brothers, they dumped all their extra candy on me without you knowing. (laughs) We laughed about it, um, even as we both knew it came from my desire as a mother to make him feel loved and cherished. I don't think I did much harm. He's like a triathlete now. But you know, the, the blame that comes, the stories that come, the things that you hear about later as your kids go older. But sadly, there are many parents today who don't have the means to give their children even simple gifts or provide even basic necessities, who need protection and sometimes need rescuing. And understanding ourselves as beloved by God means we are energized toward neighbor love and God's love and agape love and bold enough to address the difficult problems such as the systemic racism and dehumanization and children who suffer. Every year on Mother's Day, I refamiliarize myself with the story of how it came to be, not the, not the Hallmark story, but the fierce love that started it all. Ann Jarvis, who was the daughter of a Methodist minister who moved to West Virginia in the 1850s, who organized women in the churches around what is now Grafton, West Virginia, to help with the sick, calling those Mother's Day work clubs and those clubs nurse six sick soldiers at both the Union and Confederacy during the Civil War. And after the war, they called for a Mother's Friendship Day and were instrumental in reconciling families torn apart by loyalty to both the North and the South, working together for healing despite their different loyalties in the midst of war. And then later, Julia Ward Howe, who is a social reformer and suffragette, who called for an international day for peace in Boston in 1872 with her Mother's Day proclamation, which is a call to all women to rise to action and a vision that has not yet been fully realized. And as we love, as we love our families and our church and our friends, are we called to that higher love that cares for all those around us and beyond those families? Julia Ward Howe said in her first Mother's Day proclamation, arise then, women of this day. Arise, all women who have hearts, whether our baptism be of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands will not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we've been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. From the bosom of the devastated earth, the voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel, she writes. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live at peace, each bearing after his own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, 
but a God in the name of womanhood and humanity. She says, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interest of peace. Lofty ideals indeed, bold visions, fierce love that looks beyond one's family and privilege toward the needs of the human family in crisis. And so many of you out there today are engaged in your own bold vision and you're looking beyond. You have sacrificed many things. You have worked during this pandemic and especially here I think about our healthcare workers for the sake of other people's families to be there when they would otherwise be alone, to step into danger for yourself for the sake of healing of others. Beloved of God, abiding in Christ gives us courage to unmask the world around us for what it is, to keep looking for places where we're reminded of our deepest identity and to live out our lives with gratitude. So today I ask you to think about who's reminded you of your own belovedness and how are you going to express gratitude for that kind of love because that's the agape love Jesus speaks about the love he enacts, the agape love that speaks of peace and gathered disciples and took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to those whom he called his friends. The whole Christian journey is a journey of becoming friends with God. And that's how we live out Jesus' command to love one another. In the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. Thanks be to God.